The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today I'm honored to have as my guest Dr. Don Huber. Dr. Huber is a plant pathologist. He is a professor emeritus from Purdue University, where he served 35 years in plant pathology, and he is going to help us understand genetically modified crops. Dr. Huber, welcome. Thank you, Melinda. Tell me something. What I'm finding is that there's not a great understanding of what a GE crop is or a GMO crop. So GE stands for genetically engineered, and GMO is genetically modified organism. So what is it when we say a plant is a GMO? What we have done is, or what those who modify it have done, is change the genetic makeup by inserting a gene from another organism that would not normally cross with that plant, and they've merely inserted it in the genetic makeup of the plant that they wanted to modify. And why are we modifying these crops exactly? Well, they look for a specific trait that isn't uh, contained within that plant or organism, and then through several techniques are able to move that foreign gene or that gene from one organism into the desired plant or organism when it might not have otherwise been possible to do that through our standard breeding programs. Do you see a benefit to genetic engineering with regard to plants? It's a very powerful tool and a way that that we could accomplish things that can't be accomplished otherwise with the current knowledge that we have. And there are certainly some situations where it could be very positive if we understand all of the ramifications of of that gene in agriculture. You can't do just one thing without changing a lot of other things in the process. There aren't really silver bullets that solve all the problems. Right. What we have to recognize is that when you change one thing, and especially in the genetic system, that you disrupt an entire system. You're not just inserting one particular gene. You're really then changing the interrelationship of other genes with that one gene that you may insert. 
And usually with genetic engineering, we're not inserting just one gene. There will be some promoting factors and a number of other things or some markers. So it's really uh, a series of materials that are being inserted into the genetic code. What are genetically engineered crops genetically engineered or modified to do? They're modified uh, for specific purposes. Insect resistance or for uh, virus resistance, for herbicide resistance, using genes from other organisms that wouldn't normally be present in in that organism that we're working on. The crops that have been recently approved by USDA, the genetically engineered alfalfa and sugar beets, for example, they are similar to the genetically engineered soybeans in that they are all resistant to the herbicide glyphosate. Do you have some concerns about that, or do you think that's a good idea? Well, I think any time we have a single gene modification extensively used throughout our agricultural production system, that it leaves us extremely vulnerable to surprises as they might arise. Some examples would be with our normal breeding program when the Texas male sterile gene was inserted in corn to make it easier for us to make do the hybridization. But the insertion of that gene also, as, as we found out with the uh, uh, southern corn leaf blight, epidemic in 1970 and 71, the insertion of that gene also left all of those hybrids that had it extremely susceptible to a new pathogen, a new organism that hadn't been a problem uh, at all before that. And so we see the same thing with oats and Victoria blight. So this, you know, we need to understand what we're doing, but any time we expose all of one crop or multiple crops to the same genetic system, it does leave us extremely vulnerable should there be another organism that would be able to utilize that change from a disease or a quality standpoint. Prior to approving these crops, were there no discussions with plant pathologists such as yourself to assess the risk that we were about to take on? Well, they wouldn't necessarily ask a plant pathologist. They would probably ask the weed scientists, 26 north central entomologists who were responsible for determining safety of genetically engineered crops for insect resistance were concerned enough that they did write a letter to the EPA telling them that Either they had been denied access to materials to evaluate or that they had been told that they couldn't publish their research. And they wrote the letter to EPA notifying the EPA that they had no objective basis to base their regulatory decision on. And that is a concern. Also, the often uh, you don't see the objective toxicology data to follow up on some of these things. 
when you're inserting a toxic or a gene that can produce a toxic product. We need to make sure that the toxicology studies have been properly conducted. And I noticed that the Indian Supreme Court had a statement that some of those toxicology tests don't meet international standards. Mm. So there are changes. When you change one thing, you always change a number of other things. And it's important that we recognize what those other changes are in order to guarantee that the the outcome that we're hoping is the positive result that we're looking for. How were farmers sold on this technology? On the Roundup technology or the glyphosate-resistant technology, certainly simplified weed control and improved the or gave them an opportunity to cover more ground more effectively. It was very powerful technology as far as uh, clean weeds and clean weed-free fields. Mm-hmm. So they were willing to take some yield drag with the technology because of its simplicity and effectiveness mm-hmm. uh, for weed control. Mm-hmm. But now we're finding that we're developing some weeds with resistance and that introduces a whole other need then for applying more or even more powerful herbicides. Does that concern you? Yes, I think that's an indication that when you get weed resistance, uh, as we're seeing it and the speed that it's developing, I think it indicates uh, just that there's been an abuse of, of the product. Uh, we've never had the extensive use of any chemical, agricultural chemical like we have with glyphosate. And we've always required some rotation or we've always preached herbicide rotation just like we've preached crop rotation in the past. We have everything focused now for the last 30 years really moving towards just one herbicide. And when you do that, then that invites an opportunity for uh, losing uh, the tool much earlier than it would have been lost otherwise. Well, how does glyphosate work exactly, Dr. Huber? And glyphosate, of course, is the active ingredient in Roundup, and that's the Roundup-ready resistance trait that we're talking about with regard to these particular genetically engineered crops. But it's not the only ingredient in Roundup. There's also a group of of chemicals called inerts, which are not inert at all. They have a specific function, but how do all of these chemicals work together to affect both the plant that's being sprayed as well as killing the weeds? Well, you have have the chemical, but that chemical has to be able to penetrate into the plant in order to cause the damage that it does. And so there will be surfactants to make it easier to get in the plant. There will be some activators, uh, some water softeners uh, to minimize interactions of the chemistry with with the materials. That will be your calcium and magnesium or your your positively charged ions in water, hard water. So those those, uh, other ingredients are there to improve the performance of the of the chemical for what you want it to do. 
uh, glyphosate uh, was patented in 1968 or 1964, I believe, by Stauffer Chemical Company as a very strong metal chelator. We use chelators to improve ability to cross over cell membranes, but many of our herbicides are also chelators. When they bind with that element, they immobilize it so that it's no longer available physiologically uh, for the plant. And so Stauffer first patented glyphosate and a whole group of, of related products as chemical chelators to immobilize those elements. It was 10 years later that uh, Monsanto patented it as an herbicide. But its mode of action is dependent on that chelating ability. And what glyphosate does is make the plant very susceptible to common soil-borne fungi and organisms. That mechanism has been well-documented, well-published in a number of peer-reviewed scientific papers as the mode of action for glyphosate, but it's rarely cited. Hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Don Huber. Dr. Huber is Professor Emeritus from Purdue University. He's a plant pathologist, and he is explaining to us the genetically engineered or GMO crops that have been planted and ones that have been newly introduced uh, or approved, I should say, from the USDA. So we've got GMO corn, GMO soy. We're going to get GMO alfalfa, sugar beets, and a new kind of corn that is specifically used for ethanol. And my concerns, Dr. Huber, is that, A, we've, we're introducing more monocultures into our system, and B, we're introducing an herbicide that has side effects that we probably fully haven't understood. And I'm hoping you can help us explain how the the ways in which glyphosate affects plants might also affect animals and humans and just the whole soil ecology and how that will ultimately impact human health. Okay, we need to realize that when that resistant gene or or group of genes is inserted in the plant, that it doesn't do anything to the glyphosate that is applied to the plant. All it does is insert another gene so that the plant can survive when glyphosate is applied directly to the plant. Mm Mm-hmm. So the glyphosate is still a very strong metal chelator. In other words, it immobilizes essential micronutrients and macronutrients that we need for our nutrition and that animals need for their nutrition. And it is systemic in the plant so that it will also, most of it will stay in the plant as long as the plant is alive. If you have a perennial plant and you continue to apply glyphosate, it will continue to accumulate that glyphosate and then enter the food chain if it's consumed. Hmm. We do have very high tolerances uh, for glyphosate in our food chain. 
much higher than is shown in clinical trials to be extremely toxic to liver and kidney cells and uh, hormone systems and other things there, so that just because you have a genetically engineered plant for glyphosate resistance, you need to realize that there is nothing in the genetic engineering that does anything to the glyphosate. It only makes it possible for the plant to survive and for you to put more glyphosate on that plant than you would otherwise be able to uh, and that glyphosate then has the full potential of entering the food chain and the environment. Are there any studies looking at how that's going to affect our health ultimately? I mean, in one of the papers um, you so generously sent, you describe how glyphosate doesn't break down. So it must be accumulating in the soil, accumulating in plants, accumulating in our water. And I'm wondering if anyone has looked at the long-term consequences or unintended consequences, especially on our most vulnerable populations, including children, infants, and pregnant women. A lot of that uh, research has not been required, and so it hasn't been conducted. There are some... uh, uh, international laboratories, the EU requires much more detailed studies than, uh, than we do in the U.S. and also in studies that have been conducted uh, and in peer-reviewed journals and that published uh, documentation as well as court proceedings that very definitely show that the levels that we have cleared for food concentrations is many times over what the clinical studies would show as a safe level for general consumption. Hmm. In in general, a lot of that research has never been required or never been published that I'm aware of. Do you have specific concerns about these crops? Yes, we see the impact all the time on uh, nutrition of our crops crop productivity and increase in disease severity. That's fairly well documented and uh, been published in a number of different journals as far as the nutrient disease glyphosate interactions and its impact then on our crop productivity and uh, potential sustainability of our uh, productivity. So you mentioned that farmers are willing to take a yield drag for the benefit of having simplified weed control. Are farmers starting to have some second thoughts now? Especially you had mentioned that there's a greater risk for some fungi to develop and to maybe reduce yield more? Uh, Yes, much more open. uh to looking at it and trying some alternatives and many of them that's that's given them given them uh, a return to their profitability some of them haven't seen much much different because they have uh, a better nutrient relationship perhaps to start with in their soil so that it compensates for some of that yield drag that they 
would otherwise have. But you see the yield drag with just the presence of the foreign genes because those genes take energy to produce those foreign proteins that the plant would otherwise use for its growth and yield potential. Now, you mentioned that glyphosate uh, reduces or it chelates the minerals, making them, I'm assuming, unavailable to the plant. Is that correct? Yes. It also changes the soil microflora. That is, many of those organisms that are responsible for uh, recycling nutrients and increasing nutrient availability for the for plants are also very sensitive to glyphosate, and so it's a twofold effect when you have the direct effect of the glyphosate affecting the physiology of the plant from a nutrition standpoint, and then you have the effect of glyphosate as it move, moves out of the root system into the soil being very toxic to many of the soil microorganisms that we rely on to give us that nutrition in our in our plants. So one would think that the genetically engineered crops then would be less nutritious than those that aren't treated with the herbicide, and are there any studies showing that? Yes, there are a number of studies uh, that show that it takes a higher level of nutrition nutrition to produce the same yield and also the same nutrient quality mm. in those crops, as well as uh, very good peer-reviewed journal articles that document very common observation and report is the reduced mineral content of, those, of the genetically engineered crop compared to its parent that it was engineered from. You see the reduction, especially in those critical micronutrients, mm. copper and, and manganese and zinc and iron. Those tend to be very significantly lower in the genetically engineered crop than in the uh, parent plant that is not engineered. And very excellent papers document that they have for some time. You know, one would think that that reason alone would lead policymakers to say, maybe we don't want to be approving these plants because we don't want to do anything that would harm the health of a population that is dependent upon these micronutrients. Certainly those micronutrients are the ones that our medical people tell us are generally deficient in our diets. Mm -hmm. um, when you... Uh, reduce the level in the plants, reduce the level in the animal, or you reduce the level in your own uh, diet. We say we have an obesity problem. Well, what happens in the body when when it can't when the those micronutrients are aren't there for the body's physiology to use that energy? It tends to shove it aside and store it as fat. Oh, that's very so that it may not be as much of uh, high calorie intake as a micronutrient deficiency and macronutrient deficiency that's required to really utilize that energy that we're taking in.
That's very interesting. One of the other points you had made in a review paper was that the genetic engineering actually increases the susceptibility of the plant to drought and disease, and yet the marketing of these crops, at least to the general public, is that we've got to have biotechnology to deal with climate change and the drought and the rains and to feed all all of the growing population, and yet everything you're describing to me resulting from this technology would show that we're going to have less healthy plants and therefore less healthy people. So can you help me make sense of that? I think we're already seeing that. We don't have to look to the future. We're already seeing that effect. And there Zobioli and and, uh, Kramer, others have shown it takes twice as much water to produce a pound of uh, dry matter, whether that's forage for an animal or whether it's grain, but it takes twice as much when you put glyphosate out on the plant as it does without the glyphosate, and that's even with Roundup Ready plants. That would be with soybeans in their study. It changes the physiology in many different ways, But one of the real critical ways is that it reduces the availability of those micronutrients, and then you change the resistance of the plant, not only to the infectious diseases, but also the environmental stresses and diseases. Dr. Huber, if people want to learn more about this, where can they go? Oh, the European Journal of Agronomy, uh, I believe it's the July issue of um, uh, 2009, has eight or nine articles from uh, an international symposium on glyphosate that covers uh, weed resistance and nutrient interactions, disease pressures, uh, effects on soil microbiology number of those issues have been kind of a concise source. Uh, There are a lot of other individual papers, but that would give them a good start to kind of see what the scope is and concerns on the sustainability of agriculture with the continued abuse of of this particular chemical. Well, Dr. Huber, our time is up, but I want to thank you so much, and I'll provide a link to that journal article on our radio station's website. We've been speaking with Dr. Don Huber, who is Professor Emeritus from Purdue University. He is a plant pathologist, spent more than 35 years at Purdue and other universities around our country studying plants. He is an expert in this area. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Huber, thank you so much for being with me today and for your work. Thank you. 